We now continue our worship through the proclamation of God's Word. If you have your Bibles, please take them and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 13, verses 1 through 9. Luke 13, 1 through 9. I'll read the whole passage for us this morning. Luke writes, Now on the same occasion, there were some present who reported to him, that is Jesus, about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And Jesus said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans? Because they suffered this fate? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed killed them were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he began telling this parable. A man had a fig tree which had been planted in his vineyard. And he came looking for fruit on it and did not find any. And he said to the vineyard keeper, Behold, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree without finding any. Cut it down. Why does he even use up the ground? And he answered and said to him, Let it alone, sir, for this year too until I dig around it and put in fertilizer. And if it bears fruit next year, fine. But if not, cut it down. Let's go learn prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you for your word. God, we thank you that your word speaks to us no matter what time, no matter what place we live. We ask that your word would, would now speak to us today here in San Francisco in America. We ask that your spirit would fill us, that your spirit would teach us, your spirit would enable us to understand your word, understand the truths of Jesus Christ, understand his wisdom, understand what he has to say to us today. And God, we pray that you would cause us to have ears to hear and to receive and to respond to your word with obedience out of a love for you. Cause us to love Jesus more. Cause us to love our neighbors more. We ask that you be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. As a pastor, I am mindful that... um, Some of you, and perhaps many of you out there, are wondering about what I may be thinking about the unjust death of a man through the cruelty of government authority. And if you know what happened, for what seemed like an eternity, a man's life was mercilessly held in place, slowly leading to a death by asphyxiation.
you know that it's not the first time that this has happened. And sadly, you also probably know that it's not the last time either. But because one has died in this way, there will be a last time one day. It will not come from systemic changes or individual actions that man can make. Far from it. It will come from a universal upheaval and countless individual transformations that God is bringing about through the death of this one man. And I'm talking about Jesus Christ. Let me be clear. The Bible condemns racism, murder, or any form of hatred toward a fellow human created in the, in the image of God. Racism is a form of hatred. Racism is a form of pride. Racism is a form of partiality. If you are interested in learning more about what the Bible has to say about racism and the cross of Jesus Christ and the gospel, I commend to you an excellent book written by Dr. Uh, Pastor John Piper. It's entitled Bloodlines, and he has uh, made it free to download. You can go to uh, their we- his website and Google it. Uh, the title's Bloodlines, and you can download for your reading. It's a good read, very insightful. I uh, I've been looking it over again this past week and just being blessed by uh, the truths that he brings out. But it is a wonderful uh, tool to help us understand what the Bible says about the problem of racism and the power of the gospel of Christ. As Christians, ultimately what matters in this moment isn't what we think or what the politicians think or what corporations think, or what even a pastor, any given pastor might think. What ultimately matters is what our Lord Jesus thinks. What does he say to this tragedy of our time? Does he condemn racism and murder? Certainly. When he called us to love our neighbors and even our enemies, that means that hating And hurting them is wrong. It's sin, no matter what the reason. But is that what he would choose to say to us today? To tell us that racism is wrong. To tell us to love our neighbors. What actions would Jesus take? Would he, if we, would he follow along with everybody else and release a, a statement concerning racism? Would he join in a march or a protest against government authorities against racism? Would he post something on his social media? What would his message be for you and for me? And as we look to this passage in Luke chapter 13, I believe that it gives us a glimpse of how Jesus answered on the occasion 
of tragedy in the nation of Israel. And what is sort of surprising here is that we might expect that he would speak on this occasion of tragedy words of compassion or commiseration or even condemnation. But he calls for something that no one expected. He calls for repentance. And as we walk through this passage together, I pray that you would hear his words and understand why he calls for repentance and what it means to repent so that you and I might respond to his words as we face the tragedy of our times. And as an outline for us this morning, we're going to look at how Jesus teaches his listeners two essential truths on the occasion of tragedy. Two essential truths on the occasion of tragedy. Jesus is informed of a tragedy that took place in his day. And so he responds with these words. And the the first essential truth we find in verses 1 to 5. That is, that Jesus calls us to repent. Then in times of tragedy, when when news of tragedy strikes, he calls us, first and foremost, to repent. And we find, as we've read in this passage, that it's not just one tragedy that's taking place. It's it's two that are mentioned in this text. And significant to both tragedies, we learn that Jesus responds with the same call, a call to repent. And we learn... (coughs) And we learn that uh, in verses 1 to 3, in the first tragedy, we learn that times of tragic cruelty call for repentance. Times of tragic cruelty call for repentance. It tells us, we read in verse 1, that on the same occasion, there were some who reported Jesus some news. The same occasion here refers to the preceding passage, where Jesus had called his disciples to be ready for his coming. For one day the Son of Man will come and will bring judgment upon all the earth. And there will be judgment upon all except for those who have settled their debts with God. So the mention of the coming of the Messianic King may have particularly raised the political hopes of disenfranchised Israel. Some in the crowd report to Jesus a recent incident that had stoked their anger against Rome, who at that point had ruled over all of Israel. The tragic involved the murder of a group of Galileans upon the order of the Roman governor Pilate. What made the murder so much worse is that we read that the Pilate had mixed their blood with their sacrifices. In other words, these men were murdered near or in the holy temple as they were preparing to to worship and to offer sacrifices to God. Most likely this took place during the Passover. It is the only annual feast where, uh, of all the annual feasts, where Galileans would travel, but above that, where the laity, the average person, would actually sacrifice their own animal. They would kill their own animal. Normally it would be the priests, but it was on the Passover where each one would slaughter their own animals. And as so as these men, these Galileans, were bringing their animals to sacrifice, maybe they're in the act of sacrificing their animal, Pilate probably gets word that they were uh, maybe seditious, maybe they were up to no good. He sends his Roman soldiers to, to kill them. And they are slaughtered by these Roman soldiers as if they were sacrificial animals. Their blood is mixed alongside with the blood of 
the animals that they had offered, making ultimately a mockery even of Israel's religion, in a sense defiling the temple. One can imagine the anger and bitterness that this tragedy creates among the Israelites. And by telling Jesus of this event, they were hoping that he might do something about it. They might, he might say something in response that would support their cause. Will he condemn the Romans for the evil? Will he say a, a, a word in support of the Galileans? Jesus, once again, in his, in his inimitable way, answers in a manner that is completely unexpected. He does that all throughout his life in ministry. Instead of giving the crowd what they want, he gives them what they need. He tells the rich young ruler to go sell his possessions and give to the poor. He tells Martha to stop worrying about serving dinner, but sit down and listen to him. He tells the crowd seeking for a sign that none will be given except the sign of Jonah. Jesus rarely, if ever, especially in this, as we think about this circumstance, rarely ever spoke to political or social issues of his day. Only once did he do so when he was asked about the poll tax. And even then, if you recall, Jesus' answer spoke to the heart of the listener, rendered to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and rendered to God the things that are God's. In similar fashion, Jesus speaks now to the hurt and anger and frustration of the people with exactly what they need, not what they want. Jesus said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffer their fate? Instead of addressing their concern, Jesus raises to them another, an issue through a question. He raised the issue of theodicy. Why does God allow such injustice to happen? to these Galilean worshipers. Why does God allow any injustice? Jesus knows how some, if not many of them, would answer. The typical answer would be that these Galileans must have been sinners. Without, even though they did not like that, Roman, that Pilate had killed them, but yet in contrast to the average Jewish, why did, God, why did the Romans kill them and not, the, not others? Because somehow, in the back of their minds, they thought, well, those Galileans must have been sinners. They must have done something really bad. Recall in John chapter 9, when the disciples saw the blind man, they asked Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Even today, some tend to think that those who suffer must be due to their personal sin. Because they've done something bad. Uh, the popular word today is karma. And yes, it is true that sometimes sin does lead to the discipline of God out of a love from God. But not all tragedy can be explained as God's judgment or God's discipline. There's no Christian karma. Jesus instead gets to the heart of the matter. Verse 3. He says, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. No, these Galileans didn't die because they were greater sinners. Rather, their death serves as a warning to his hearers 
to repent. He turns it, he, he turns their focus, their focus is on Rome, upon the Galileans, and Jesus turns it upon them. He says, No, what will you do? No, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. The Galileans' death remind people that they will all face death sooner or later. As the author of Hebrews 9 20, and writes in uh, 9, chapter 9, verse 27, it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. This is inevitable. All of us will die eventually. And after we die, all of us will face judgment. And Jesus knows this. And Jesus is saying, if you have not repented from sin and turned in faith to Jesus, you will likewise perish. It doesn't matter how you die, whether you die at the hands of injustice, whether you die by the slow sands of time. If you do not repent, you will perish in the same. As a wise shepherd, Jesus speaks to our needy hearts in the face of tragic cruelty. And he calls us to repent. He knows that hearts are are focused on the present and the temporal, but he wants us to look instead to the future and the eternal. For all of us, in about 75 years, that's really a drop in the bucket of time. Whatever tragedy we face today will be far from our minds. And the only tragedy that will remain forever is if we did not repent here and now and put our faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus is teaching us that times of tragedy are times in which he would want you and me to repent and turn to him in faith. Jesus goes on to emphasize the same thing when facing a a different kind of tragedy in verses 4 to 5. And we learn in verse 4 to 5 that times of tragic calamity call for repentance as well. Some tragedies occur at the hands of other human beings, while others occur apart from them. As we see here in verses 4 to 5, we call these, sometimes we call these calamities, acts of God. And they range from natural disasters to unforeseen accidents to even, yes, pandemic diseases. In this case, Jesus raises the, the, the incident of a tower near Siloam. We, in the Bible, we're familiar with the Pool of Siloam. And Siloam was uh, in the certain section, uh, and it was an actually in the southeast corner of Jerusalem. And apparently, Jesus uh, reveals that there was a tower there that had fallen and had killed 18 people. It was a tragic accident. It was not intentional. It was not on purpose. A tower fell and people died and were crushed underneath it. And Jesus again asked the same question. Did it happen because those 18 people were worse sinners than others? By the way, he used a different word here for for sinners. He used the word culprits. That word's translated, actually it's translated literally as debtors. He reminds us that all of us owe a debt to God because of our sin. Again, Jesus offers the same answer to his question. No, 
That 18, those 18 who died in the accident, they weren't, it wasn't because they were bad people or, or worse people than you or me. They weren't worse than, they were sinners. They were just everyday average sinners like you and me. And their deaths serve to remind us that you also will one day die and face God's judgment. And so unless you repent, you will likewise perish. You see, tragedy, whether due to cruelty or calamity, exists in our world because of the curse of sin. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, sin was introduced into the human race. Sin was introduced into our world. And since then, all of us have sinned. All of us are born with a sin nature. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. And all of us are guilty before God because of the works of sin that we commit. In this sin-cursed world, tragedy happens all too often. And occasionally, as we've seen in the recent days and weeks, people get frustrated and upset with tragedy that they want to do something about it. They, they try to do something about it. They will protest, as we've seen. Uh, they will uh, legislate. They will divest. They will educate. Not necessarily that any of these things are wrong. But until sin is removed from this world, tragedy will remain. Because sin remains. So Jesus reminds us that the first thing to facing tragedy is to repent. It's to make sure that we ourselves do our part in turning away from sin and turning in faith to Jesus Christ. To repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. What does it mean to repent? What's this, meaning, what's this word mean? Ultimately, it's a word that, that conveys this idea of a change of mind. It describes a change of mind, though, that is not just only in the mind, but it's a change that ultimately leads to a change of actions, a change of mind that leads to a change of life, a change in actions. It means, it begins with, the, the change of mind begins with recognizing that one is a sinner. That even before, as I point my fingers at others that they're racist, let us not forget that I'm racist and I'm prejudiced and I'm biased because I'm a sinner. You think if we just took all the races right now and, and just locked them all up or, or eliminated them from the world, then in five years, in one year from now, you will not have racism still? Until you eliminate sin. Racism and all the other forms of sin continue to exist in our world. Sin and, the, uh, and selfishness are hinder. hinder uh, hinder us from God and God and through and God through Jesus tell is telling us that the only response right response to tragedy in our world is to repent from our sin and turn away from sin and selfishness and to trust and obey in God I want to encourage though many of you out there in light of Jesus words who are eager to take action against racism. And each of you may be led to take action in different ways. And, and, as, and, and I, commend you, I commend you for your desire to do something. 
But the challenge, of course, is that racism is a heart problem. So whatever solution, whatever action you take, know that unless you reach the heart of a person, you will not change lives. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the final answer to racism. Spirit-produced repentance and transformation is what is needed. And I know many of you believe this already, that what the world needs is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So if you want to do anything or something to end racism, proclaim the gospel. Proclaim it to others. Live it out. In fact, the response to any tragedy ought to be, first and foremost, the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Calling other people to repent and turn their eyes upon Jesus. Because it's the only way to bring lasting change in our world and people. What's more, it's the only thing that prepares us for the rest of our lives. I'm not just talking about these 70 years. To my eternity. Have you repented? Ask yourself that. If you say that you have, then, then how does that, how do you know that? How does it show in your life? And in the next section of this passage, Jesus wants to convey what it means to repent. We learn a second truth on the occasion of tragedy that Jesus teaches us, and this essential truth is that Jesus calls us to bear fruit. In verses 6 through 9, Jesus calls us to bear fruit. Jesus teaches here by means of a parable that, uh, that, he, that he, he gives, but he leaves unexplained. And at first glance, the parable seems somewhat unrelated to what, he is, what has just preceded. What does a parable about bearing fruit have to do with the calling to repentance. But if we recall back to Luke chapter 3, verse 8, when John the Baptist saw the crowds coming to be baptized for repentance of sins, he, he saw among them, he said these words. He called out and said, Therefore, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. In other words, there, there are people out there that are coming to him to say, I repent, getting baptized to be, and say they repent, but they really their trust was not in Jesus, but their trust was in their, their heritage. And there wasn't a genuine repentance there. He calls those who are getting baptized for, in his baptism to show that they repent by how they live their lives, by bearing fruit. I had a conversation with my daughter uh, just uh, a week or two ago, and we're talking about uh, the wind. And I asked her, can you see the wind? And she answers, she's clever, so she said, no. So then I asked her, how do you know it's there then? And she says, because I see the trees moving. We know that we don't see wind, but we know that wind is there because we see the effects of that wind. We see it on its effects on its trees. In a similar way, we know that repentance exists in the heart of a person because we see it in the fruits that one bears in his or her life. 
in the actions, in the attitudes that are manifest for all to see. So with this in mind, the parable then becomes pretty much self-explanatory. Oh, it, Jesus is telling this parable about fruits because you know he calls people to repentance, but how do you know people repent? Through the fruits. So he calls us to repent and he calls us to bear fruit. The parable is self-explanatory. The man that owns the vineyard, uh, the, the fig tree, is God. The fig tree was a common image for Israel. And by application, the, the people of God throughout history, even today, us. The vineyard keeper is Jesus himself. And we can draw three truths from this parable. And the first truth that we draw from this parable is that God expects you to bear fruit. God expects you to bear fruit. God had, in the history of Israel, planted the nation. He had chosen their forefather, Abraham, and, and promised to bless him so that in his descendants, all the families of the earth would be blessed. So God expected Israel to bear fruit. And year after year, Israel, instead of bearing fruit, failed to bear fruit. See, bearing fruit is not supposed to be an optional choice for the people of God. God has saved you and God has blessed you for a purpose. And that purpose is to bear fruit, to glorify Him, to do good works. We see this reflected in the New Testament, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. This, this verse follows that, that famous passage, 289, about why we're saved. We're saved by grace and not of works. It's a gift of God. Ephesians 2.10, Paul says, writes this, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. You see that? God saved us. We're a new creation in Christ Jesus so that we would, for the purpose of good works. And on, the, on top of that, these good works have been prepared beforehand. From before eternity began, there is good works that God has created for you and me to do as those who are new creations in Christ to do. It is our job to discern what that is and then to do it. A non-fruit-bearing Christian is an oxymoron. God expects you and me to bear fruit. This leads to the second a second lesson that we can draw from this parable, and that is in verse 7, that God will judge the one who does not bear fruit. God will judge the one who does not bear fruit. The man tells the vineyard keeper, the owner tells the vineyard keeper, that he has looked for three years and has not found any fruit. So he wants him then to just simply cut the fig tree down because it's simply wasting space and resources. Three years is, is mentioned here because that is generally the amount of time that, uh, that a, a fig tree uh, starts to bear fruit. And so uh, this is a picture of, of God looking. God had been, had been patient and waiting for them. And now he realized that this fig tree is not producing fruit. So he's going to, he's going to lop, cut it down. It's just taking up space. It's, it's drawing root nutrients and re water and resources from the ground that other plants could be using. But it's not producing, not doing what it ought to do. And so he's going to cut it down. And this is a picture of, of God's judgment upon the nation of Israel. God has been more than patient with the nation of Israel. It's a warning to them that judgment is coming. 
In fact, the same imagery was also used by John the Baptist in the verse after where he said, uh, uh, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. He says, indeed, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. So every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Jesus, through the parable and John the Baptist, through his words, reminds us that there is a judgment upon those who do not bear fruit. And this warning extends beyond Israel to the church today. We can all say that we have repented and believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ. But does it show in our lives? How are we loving God? How do we show our love for God? How are we loving our neighbors? We show our love for God by obeying His commandments. We show our love for God by, by worshiping Him. We show our love for God by, yes, by loving our neighbors. The gospel of Jesus Christ causes us to love others as God loved us. And that includes everyone, whether they are like us or whether they are different from us, whether they are our friend or whether they are a foe. What's more, the, the gospel helps us to be people who forgive others, even when they have hurt us. Without the gospel, people respond to racism with anger, hatred, and vengeance. But instead, in Christ, we are to respond with forgiveness, love, and grace. And though judgment is coming for those who do not bear fruit, we learn a third truth from this parable. In verses 8 through 9, that God extends mercy and grace to bear fruit. The vineyard keeper, as we see in the story, pleads with the owner, the man, to allow the fig tree more time. And not only is it more time, and that, but he, the, the vineyard keeper says that he will do something about it. He will dig around it. That is, to remove any stones, clear out the rocks, clear out things that may choke the roots of the plant, that may hinder it from growing. And then, on top of that, he will replace it with fertilizer, nutrients, so that this fig tree can grow and bear fruit. And hopefully that it would bear fruit the next year. But if not, then it would be cut down. You see, the, what the vineyard keeper does is that he does provides all this stuff. It works so that if this tree is, uh, if this tree uh, is a healthy tree, it will then respond and bear fruit. But if it's a dead tree, if it's ultimately just dead at its core, then it's not going to respond even to the fertilizer that uh, that is put around it. And this is basically a picture of what Jesus does for Israel. That Jesus. That Jesus shows grace and mercy to Israel, even though Israel for for, for a long time had uh, not not followed, not bore the bore the fruit that they were supposed to bear uh, for God. Yet even in Jesus Christ was one final act, really, of God's grace and mercy. 
Jesus is God's grace sent to Israel and, yes, to the world. As we know, Jesus would come down in the form of man and minister to Israel in the flesh so they would see him walking and talking and living and breathing. The Son of God in the flesh. And he performed countless miracles before them. And he taught them with great authority and proclaimed to them the precious message of the gospel of the kingdom through which they might enter into that kingdom. He lived before them a perfect righteous life demonstrating compassion and love and mercy. And then he died on the cross. Not for his sins, but for theirs. See, Jesus Christ has made everything possible for Israel to bear fruit. And God's mercy and grace through Jesus Christ continues to be offered to the people of today so that we may bear fruit. We see this truth taught elsewhere in the New Testament. Titus chapter 2, verse 11 to 14. It's a lengthy section, but I want to read it to you in in its fullness. Paul writes to Titus, who ministered on the Isle of Greece, and I'll Crete. He says this, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. See, Jesus is the manifestation, the personification of God's grace. He has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, not just to Israel, but to all men, to you and me. And he brings salvation to those whom he brings salvation, to those who are recipients of his grace. He calls us to bear the fruit of God's grace. Brothers and sisters, if you have received God's grace, if you know the grace of salvation that is found in Jesus Christ, then you and I must bear the fruit of this grace. As this text uh, exhorts us to, let us, as dependence upon God's grace, strive to, to, to live godly lives, not ungodly lives, but godly lives for Him. Looking for His kingdom, not this kingdom on earth. Being zealous for good deeds so that He may be glorified. This is what you and I, as recipients of grace, of God's grace in Jesus Christ, are to do. The all eternity... If we do not do this, if we do not bear fruit, as described here, the alternative is the judgment of God. If you have not repented, I invite you even today to repent, to acknowledge that you're a sinner, and turn in faith to Jesus Christ. Do not be as much concerned with the sins of others 
as you ought to be with the your, this, your sins of yourself. For God will not judge you for other sins. God will judge you for your sins. And so Jesus, on the occasion of tragedy, calls you, tells you to repent. For unless you repent, you too will perish. It's most irrelevant how you will die. We all will die. The question is, will you be ready? Will you be prepared? Have you repented and put your faith in Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins? And as you receive God's grace, may you then, in dependence upon the grace in Christ, bear fruits in keeping with repentance, living godly lives, looking to eternity, and being zealous for good deeds. I want to just conclude with a a quote from John Newton. John Newton's infamy is probably well known. He's that vile slave trader, he's a captain of a slave trading ship, who turned away from sin and became a minister of Jesus Christ. His was a life that was transformed by the grace of God. And near the end of his life, I, he wrote these words, and they just uh, I want to read it for you. Because they remind us of what really matters. My memory is nearly gone. But I remember two things. That I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. Near the end of our lives, we may not remember the tragedies of this day or many other tragedies that our lives have faced. But may we remember that which is most important, that we are great sinners who have repented of our sins because Christ is a great Savior. May we hold on to Him first and foremost for the rest of our days. May He be our message and our hope when we face life's tragedies. May God use us to be a blessing to the world out there that is hurting and angry and lost and in search of an answer, an answer that is found only in Jesus. Just for some of you out there who would like to think about some questions for reflection, I'll leave with you with three then. How are you responding to the tragedies of today? Have you repented for the forgiveness of your sins? And how are you bearing fruit in keeping with repentance? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. Thank you for these truths. God, we pray that even as we are uh, uh, wondering and maybe even confused and maybe we're just looking for something to do in, in light of the, the turmoil and the racism and, uh, and, the, and the, 
the anger and hatred that, that is going on outside, we pray that the times that these times tragedy would cause us to look within, look at ourselves first, to look at what you have to say to us, to re- that unless we repent, we too will perish. Father, we pray that you would help us once again examine our lives, making sure that we have repented even of sin, but even of sins that continue in our lives. That we would live lives that would be characterized by the bearing of fruit. Good works and good deeds that reflect Christ in us. Help us, Father, to be salt and light in our world. Use each of us as you lead to be your representatives. Help us to love our enemies. Help us to love and to be an example because we love you. And ultimately, we love you because you first loved us. We thank you, Father, for Jesus and your gift of grace. Thank you for your patience towards us. and Thank you for your patience that you continue to offer to the world. Oh, Lord, help us as a church to tell people about your patience and your love in Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.